This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. If you've lived in Los Angeles all your life, you may not realize how strange the city can be. Sometimes it takes leaving the city and coming back to recognize some of the absurdity that exists in this town. And I look at a lot of photographs that are made by photographers from and uh, who live outside of Los Angeles who come to the city, and many of them don't capture the absurdity of that they exist in this town. But David Strick is certainly that exception because his work for the last several decades has definitely tapped into that. It started as a result of an editorial assignment, but since then, he's been making his living as an editorial, advertising, and corporate photographer, focusing mostly on the motion picture industry. And if movies and television is the only way that you know anything about Los Angeles, well, you're kind of missing out, because this place can be the source of some great humor, and and David's images really reveal that. You may be familiar with some of his photographs because he had a regular photo column in Premiere Magazine and later in the Los Angeles Times. And when you take a look at his photographs, you get to see how weird this city can be. Not just not just the movie business, but just L.A., period. And it's one of the great things about his photographs that I appreciate so much. And I'm really pleased that after a long time coming, I finally have him as a, a guest on the show. To sit back and enjoy our conversation with David Strick. David, first off, thank you. Thank you. For uh, being on the show. You've been uh, a person who's been mentioned to me several times who I should sit down and interview and finally got around to, to doing it. So I'm pleased, pleased to, to see you here in front of the mic. Thank you. Great to be here. Um, I, I like your work because it reminds me of the L.A. that I grew up with. There's just, it's, it's a bizarre town. It's a bizarre town. And Hollywood is sort of known for its, for its glitter and its, you know, all the, all the shiny, all the shiny things. And your photos not only reveal the other side of it, but in a real quirky, humorous way. And it's, it's something that I don't see a lot. And I really appreciate that work. And but I, I was reading that you, you, it got started as part of an assignment that you came out here for a magazine to document Hollywood when it was less than shiny and new, when it had really taken a downturn. T- tell us about that and how that ended up launching this, this work that you've been doing over the last few decades. Well, it actually, literally the very first um, point of genesis of the whole thing was I was a stringer for the New York Times. This is uh, early 70s. In 1975, um, physical Hollywood, the city of Hollywood itself, um, was in serious decline. The Hollywood sign, you may remember at the time, the letters were falling apart and falling down the hill. The H was like, you know, fragmented, whatever. And the whole city was kind of vice-ridden and a complete physical mess. A lot of open prostitution and various and sundry signs of urban decay. And so Mm -hmm. for some reason that hit the sweet spot news-wise and New York Times decided to do a story about it. Just a thing on one of the the second section, I think, of it. Careful about hitting the table. Thank you. 
I'm, I flail a lot, as I said. <laughs> it's okay. I'm going to just take my hands down here. It's an Italian kind of bass thing where you gesture excessively. Okay. Um, I think but, Dominicans have that as well. <laughs> <laughs> see, I'm holding them like this now. You, you can't really see. If you're listening to this, you can't see me hold, constraining myself, but I actually am. Uh, anyway, the, the, so I was sent out by the New York Times to do these pictures of, you know, for like a day or so, of, take pictures of, show the vice, show how it's, you know. And I began to, so I took a bunch of pictures. And I had this illusion at the time, because I was a young photographer, that somehow this was going to be a great statement, sort of, because it was, it was, it was an amazing set of contrasts I was just noticing on the street. And, uh, of course, when it actually ran, the... They ran it in a typical newspaper of that era style, which is to say the, the pic, they took one picture of mine, ran it really small, and they ran a picture of a 1930s premiere. Oh. And so I was just sort of, I was like, you know, young, kind of when, you, when you're young and stupid, you, you, you're sort of more devastated by these things. So I was like, oh, my God, look what they did to my work. And so I, and I realized at the time that I was, it sort of caused me to realize that I had, I was really on the verge of becoming a serious hack that basically outlets would only, if you wanted to do good work, you had to do good work and sort of propose it to people. You couldn't respond to assignments which were generated by someone else and it's their, their idea of how something should be and try to fit yourself into that. So I began to, because I had grown up to a, in a kind of a, to a small extent or a certain extent, in a Hollywood family, I had a, a much greater familiarity than, than your typical person would with these phenomena. And so they seemed more like a natural extension of something that everyone should be interested in to some extent. Uh, I couldn't understand that it having been treated quite that way. So I thought, okay, if you want to do something, you really have to do it yourself. Yeah. Um, and I began to generate stories of my own uh, that were along my own lines of interest and proposing them to magazines where I had some contacts or something or taking some pictures and then, you know, showing them what the idea was in order to generate my own work through them. Because to get into the situations that I wanted to get into, you had to have some credentials. And to have some credentials, you had to have a letter from an editor or something like that. So it was kind of circular. Um, and, I, you know, I was only a few years out of school at that point. I was in my early 20s, and so mid-20s. And I'd, I realized that, uh, that that whole kind of, routine of, of accepting assignments and basing what your work would be on someone else's, you know, parameters was really limited. And that, mm -hmm. um, the whole authorial side of being a photographer would go missing there. And so my focus on, uh, Hollywood was, was partly based on kind of just natural interest and personal preoccupation, but also just on the larger idea that you shouldn't be passive. You're a photographer. You shouldn't be, um, subject to, you know, you're, you're, at the end of your life, your work shouldn't be a series of fulfilled assignments. Well, so much of the work that's produced by photographers here is, it serves the, the PR machine. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that a lot of the work that was out there that you were being offered related to promoting a film or a television show or something along those lines. So how did you sort of figure out, okay, I need to get you know, this, this job that will create images that will help serve whatever purpose these people have, but also allow me to be able to bring my own personal perspective into the mix as well. I'd come up with my own, with my own story ideas. Could you give me an example? For example, I came up with an idea to do a story uh, with a writer friend of mine 
who was a child actor, former child actor who'd actually acted in a TV series with Ronald Reagan when he was a, you know, a kid. Um, and we decided to do a story on, uh, um, just all, all of the, um, the actors and extras and everyone that went to auditions, the public auditions, the private auditions. So for months and months, we just went to auditions and I photographed this kind of moment where the actors were being disappointed or they were dressed up strangely because there was a James Dean audition. Everybody was dressed as James Dean or Groucho mm -hmm. Marx audition. And they would have like, you know, 38 Grouchos, all of them competing with each other, <laughs> you know, to do Groucho shtick. And so, um, it was, it, he's being a child actor and being from this, you know, family that had a little history like that. There was this perfect kind of storm. And we did, so we did a few stories like that. And I then would just, uh, over the years I began to, I, you know, I, I got magazines to let me do what I wanted to do for them. I persuaded okay. Premier Magazine to give me a monthly photo column in which I would go behind the scenes on large or small or intermediate movies and just shoot whatever I wanted. And they would run one picture, black and white, either on the back page or some inside page. Did that for about 11 and a half years and then uh, persuaded the LA Times to let me do a web and print feature for them for a couple of years. And then the Hollywood Reporter to do something equivalent for them for a couple of years. So basically I was, I was you know, getting uh, access through these places. And it was, it was large, a large part of it was based on the fact that I'd spent many years doing a lot of doing this kind of coming up with story ideas of my own and generating it, uh, generating some of my own or most of my own momentum in this area. Uh, at the same time, I was working as a portrait photographer and shooting various portrait assignments. So I wasn't, you know, in any way opposed to having just incoming randomness uh, in terms of assignments. That was great. It's just that it would always be something someone else wanted. And I wasn't really getting assignments to do what I really wanted to do. I mean, you know, you know, take a picture of a businessman, take a picture of, you know, a celebrity within these, you know, and here's the, here's the setting in which you should be shooting this, you know? So, uh, I was a, an assignment fulfiller, but, uh, the stuff that mattered to me was the stuff that I was generating myself. And even of course, when you shoot and it, you know, the most kind of mechanical job, you can still shoot things for yourself and come out of that with something that maybe the, the publication or the client is not interested in, but you are, and you can use later. It's just that it's hard to get a through line uh, through all those kinds of random assignments that is, you know, the relates to authorship. There's just, you know, it's, it'll be like your, your greatest hits pictures of businessmen or your greatest hits pictures of, you know, some set of scenarios that have been dictated by your clients as opposed to what you really want to do. Yeah. One of the things about photography that I've said before to, to friends is that if you're a professional photographer, of any sort or even an amateur you're doing what you really want to do you you know photography is this thing that everybody you know is, is insanely widespread and growing in terms of its of its use but if, you, if, you're, if you're lucky enough to be a professional you have some degree of to which you are doing what you really want to do so if you're already doing what you really want to do why not do what you really want to do within that you know, what's, what's standing between you and really doing the thing you want to do? Very little, actually, usually. It's usually yourself. Yeah. You know, what's, what's, one of the things I'm, I'm curious to hear about is that you do a lot of behind-the-scenes shots. So it seems like you, you pull back and you do sort of the reveal 
of what's being being shot and you see the crew people and you see the the boom and you see this you know the cinematographer and you're seeing all of those sort of behind the scenes but there's such a humor to a lot of your your your, your photographs and and it's usually because of the juxtaposition of these these elements that th- at, at first they don't make sense and they're very and it seems very absurdist and then it just makes you laugh and you just think this is just so weird and so funny <laughs> Was, 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 for you, when you started observing that, was just the situation sort of ideal for being able to make pictures like that? Or did you sort of have to learn after a while to, to pick up on that and to make a photograph? Because for some people, it may come naturally, or others, it may come over time, and all of a sudden they start looking at their work and go, oh, this is really strange, and this really works. So what, what was that like for you? Um, it comes out of a kind of a strange sort of innocence, really. I mean, I, when I was a kid, I was, uh, because my family had, uh, my dad was a, um, film director and producer of independent movies, you know, before they really had them. I mean, he and his friends were sort of people that came to Hollywood, uh, and, and couldn't get normal Hollywood work. So they started doing things on their own. Ian Haskell Wexler and a few people like that mm-hmm. um, were sort of this little cabal of people that collaborated with each other during the 50s and, and were just friends forever. And so they, they, they uh, I, I was exposed to, I was on a few sets in a, in a few situations just long enough to, before the boredom usually sets in. <laughs> so it just looked strange. It was like, I, I, it was like the, you know, these are grownups pretending for real. They were play acting, but they were, do, they, they were very serious about it. They were doing what was essentially children's activities of dress up and pretend, but they were doing it. It had this huge consequentiality, and they were, you know, they were very serious about it. And they were grown ups, and they were big people, and they were, you know, couldn't believe it. And they were these these sets, and they, and, you know, everybody was serious, yeah. even if they were, you know, dressed in some goofy way. So it always looked weird to me, and it was basically I was the kid in the emperor's new clothes scenario. It was like. Look, there's a man on a horse with no clothes, mommy. Shh, get, you know, your your parents are shushing you. So I I just kind of tabled that. And then when I started, I you know, okay, that's what they do. It's interesting. It's an extension of what I do as a kid, huh? Uh, then when I started shooting professionally in my early twenties, I was sent back by publications to sets and so forth. And it still looked strange to me. It still looked just as goofy as it had when I was a kid. And so the essential revelation was. Uh, you were right when you were nine, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so I just, I just kind of picked up where I had left off as, as, as a befuddled and bewildered nerdy little kid. And, you know, it just, that's just how it looks to me. And when you take a look at it, it is, I mean, it's like, you know, everybody is, it's just like industrial form of play acting that is, uh, you know, this, this parallel universe of, of, of like, you know, hilarity and falsity, and even when it is incredibly serious and uh, consequential to the people that are doing it, it's goofy. Yeah. Um, so it's inescapable is basically what I'm trying to say. And I think that one of the reasons that maybe it is not photographed that way or this this stuff looks, it, it, it seems to focus more on humor and so forth, is, how, is that most people that photograph it are photographing it with a, a kind of an intentionality, which is, narrow focused and professional it's mm-hmm. like they've got to get you know the key shot of the actor looking heroic well that actor is balanced on you know he's, he's being held up by wires and people are, are 
controlling the wires. He's got on the side pulling the wires, and they're sweating heavily. And uh, beneath him is a great big safety pad. And then there's some people that are looking at their watches to make sure the scene's not going too long. Uh, and they're not losing money. And so you know, you, if you start yeah. to pull back, you start to see all the stuff around this, and you take it less seriously naturally because the context is surreal. You have this, this great photo of a woman holding, holding this large bag that an elephant is defecating into. <laughs> and it was, I guess, her Deep Impact was the, Deep Impact, uh, yes. was the movie. And there's a great story about a phone call you got in reaction to that photo when it was published. Yes, why don't you tell that? Because I think that that is that is so telling of this town. Yes, it really was. It was it was a moment in which uh, the the elephant wrangler, you know, all the animals on a set will, of course, act like animals on a set. They have you know natural functions of their bodies that, that that actually take place. So this woman was actually holding a giant garbage bag under the posterior of a, of a very large elephant uh, in anticipation of uh, you know what was to come, and she's kind of cringing. She's got this kind of look on her face like ah as she's holding out this giant garbage bag and so um this ran on the back page of premier magazine from the column the monthly column i was doing for them and i got a call from the junior publicist or the studio publicist the vp um uh, a nice very nice woman but she was she had called to dress me down officially she said david you know this this picture is degrading humiliating it is gross and vulgar and unfortunate and uh, I, I truly don't know if we're going to be able to have you back on a, you know, the studio set, a Paramount set again, um, for a very long time. Uh, this is just a, you know, this is a movie that is about the end of the world. It's a serious movie. It's about the consequences of, you know, uh, this planet being hit by a giant meteorite and the human drama behind that. And what we have here is, a, you know, this woman with holding a garbage bag under an elephant's butt. And um, she said, so... Um, I'm really sorry to have to deliver this message to you, but you know, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I apologize. I said, you know, I'm sorry. It's, you know, what am I going to say? So uh, next day, I had to fly to San Francisco and back. I had some other job I had to do. As I came, as the plane was landing, my, my beeper, I was wearing a beeper at the time, went off. And I then went to a payphone and just to see who was paging me. And it was the same publicist. And she said, um, uh, David, uh, actually, uh, uh, I have some more news, and I, I was I was cringing. I was like, okay, you know, what else could you know? Maybe I could lose my photographer's license or something. I don't know. Uh, and she said, actually, the picture has gone from being the most hated picture in the history of Paramount Pictures to being one of the better liked pictures. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, the producer and the director both want prints. <laughs> I said, oh, really? Well, I'll be very glad to provide them. And. Uh, so it, it, that's, that just shows you, you know, they, they actually had a greater sense of humor about the whole thing than the publicist, whose job it is, you know, to worry about these things, of course. And, and I was worried about it. I didn't know if I inadvertently crossed some, you know, terrible line and I destroyed the prospects for the movie by taking you know, the wrong picture. But um, that just shows you how um, there, there, there is no accepted uh, reality here it's it's just it's a kind of a it's always in transition from one thing oh, to another yeah yeah because it's like everyone's trying to control perception but control is very elusive in this town it's ever changing um it, it, and it bleeds out into the rest of the town even people who aren't involved in the industry you know i i have this story that i tell people uh, I, when i went to school in berkeley i was gone for about two or three years 
And I got back, and I was on uh, a street corner. I think it was uh, across from Lakma. Mm-hmm. And I was standing there across the street, and there was this guy in this really nice suit standing at the corner. He had an attache case with him. And, and I was looking at him going, what's... I just looked at him, and there was there was just something wrong. And then it hit me. He was posing. He was he was standing there, ready to cross the street. But the way he was carrying himself was he was there on display for all the people who stopped at the light. And I was just like, this is the freaking strange down. And <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's pervasive because it, like this is a town where where a lot of the people either feel like they should be famous or they are famous. It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And the, the line between fantasy and reality here is there is no line. It's actually just sort of more of a gray area. Um, yeah. And no, it is very true. I remember being on the set of a movie called Gone in 60 Seconds many years ago. We were shooting on the, it's this uh, bridge in uh, San Pedro. And uh, from a distance, I noticed uh, the a man, what appeared to be Nicolas Cage, and he was standing and uh, posing in these various ways with his head up and looking... Uh, very in these ways that looked like a parody of someone uh, in in a key light, chin up, heroic, uh, shoulders to one side to the other side, and I was kind of fascinated. It was a great distance, and I thought it was Nicolas Cage. It turned out it was not Nicolas Cage. It was his stand-in. Nicolas Cage just actually kind of walks through scenes. His stand-in was a highly professional guy who was actually testing where the light was. And he was, you know, trying a series of what he thought might be possible poses uh, that Nicolas Cage would actually be then going through. Nicolas Cage, when he went through the scene, didn't do any of them. But this guy had to sort of see what the light felt like and looked like. And he was literally just sort of turning his face up to the sun and to the various lights that were there as he's walking through the scene. (laughs) His job was to go back to Nicholas Cage and say, okay, you know, at three o'clock at at such and such a point, if you turn right, you you know, this will happen. And so it was this kind of strange, you know, detailed research that was being done. But he looked more Nicholas Cage. Nicholas Cage didn't even look like Nicholas Cage. (laughs) This guy was like Nicholas Cage to, you know, squared or, or quadrupled. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find the fact that you're that you're in tune with sort of the absurd nature of, of everything that it's easier for you to work with some of these these actors in order to get the shots that you you need? Because I, I can imagine a lot of people might feel intimidated by some of these people, but especially with all the wranglers and all the politics that are, are playing on, on the set. Do you find that just because you, you you see the world the way that you do? That somehow it's a little easier for you to do your do your work. Probably because I, to, for one thing, I actually uh, care less than your typical photographer about the central actors in the scene. I mean, they're just one of the elements. They're they're a, quite an important element. But um, the whole thing is a process, and there are these all these all the supporters and supporting elements are also just as visually interesting as what's going on in, in the middle. And in fact, you know, it's just the, let's say the whole thing about, you know, 90% of the iceberg or whatever being underwater. Uh, the, um, so so if, if you're not there to simply stare and stalk the actor, stare at and stalk the actor, but are, are kind of looking at everything at once and, and reacting equivalently kind of across the board, you're much more at ease. There's always something to be looking at or for. Because uh, actors will come and go from the set. They tend to go back to their trailers in between scenes. They're not just necessarily hanging out all the time. So they're not, shall we say, targets of opportunity in the, in the same sense that the, the, the rest of the people working on a, on a set are. 
And uh, in fact, they they're often doing the least interesting thing. That they get, they come up, they, they you know, they come to their mark and they talk. They deliver a line, and then they go through like 14 different iterations of that line from different angles. And um, there aren't that many scenes that are actually visually interesting. It's often what happens between scenes among the actors and the crew and or the, what is happening during setup or breakdown that's actually fascinating or what's happening on the back lot outside this, you know, the soundstage that you're interested in. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a world, it's, it's, it's an industrial, you know, it's an industrial fantasy island, you might yeah. say, uh, within the larger, you know, uh, world of, of, of uh, intermittent reality. You, you've, you've covered a lot of different types of productions. You've shot on porn sets, you've shot on big budget films, you've shot on, on, on low budget films, and you've done such a, a, a wide swath of different sort of productions. What, what sort of insights have you gotten in terms of just the nature of the machine here in Hollywood as a result of having shot all these, all these different things? Well, it's, it's, it's essentially one giant pulsating organism. <laughs> it's, you know, it's all the same thing. It's like whether it's a large, high budget or low budget movie that, you know, the, the sets are, you know, the front of the set will look credible for that production and the back of it won't because it's, it's all a Potemkin village. So, you know, it, it, they have everything in common with each other and a certain limited amount in common, all only what is necessary to have in common with the real world uh, in, in terms of, of, of the 90% that's underwater, you know? Um, one of the funny things, for example, about an adult film is that the, as compared to, let's say, the other forms of, you know, entrotainment that we're used to, is that those sets are, you know, they are literally more serious in a certain way and, 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 and directed than a tick book movie. I mean, if you're talking about a, a fight scene in a movie, the stuntmen are trained, the, the, their gift is to be able to look like they're fighting and, and, and killing each other when they're actually not. Mm-hmm. You're taking, well, you know, porn actor, actress, are, they, have to, they have to stand and deliver. Um, they, there's a lot of simulation in, in, in adult films. I mean, when they don't have to be actually involving themselves in, in, in penetration, they don't. They're like test pilots. They make a lot of sounds and, and moan and groan. And one of the things that's really boring about those sets is, is that so much of what's going on there is is pretend. Um, but you know, they're all, they're stunt people who use, you know, who, who, who set, whose stunt is, 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 is sexually oriented as opposed to the stunt people whose, you know, stunts are violence and, and, you know, uh, jumping around and bouncing off walls. Um, so the, the, the and, and it's all this funny funhouse mirror reflection of the, of, you know, the outside world where they're basically, you know, all of these uh, efforts to create these entertainments are based on some level of reality and some level of fantasy. And the thing that's one of the things that, that really fascinates me about that is is that it doesn't end there. That Hollywood, for example, has a vastly greater effect on Los Angeles and the world than Broadway does on. New York and its environs. You know, Broadway's a kind of a self-contained little phenomenon. Hollywood takes, you know, what, Hollywood's product, and I use the gen, Hollywood in the generic sense, because Hollywood could be Vancouver, and it could be, you know, Romania, where they shoot these things. Um, you know, that stuff is distributed everywhere. It 
affects the culture here in Los Angeles much more than Broadway affects New York. I mean, the, the consequences of Hollywood having been here for over 100 years, you can see it in, in just sort of the bones of Los Angeles. It's just, it was always a quirky place. The architecture was always different. It was always this place where, you know, people were kind of liberated from their prior identities, whether they came from, you know, Brooklyn or they came from Weimar, Germany, you know, as refugees, they were here because of the, they were chasing a dream. We've had generations of people now, three, four generations of people who came out here and either found a way into that business or didn't, but they came out here with that dream. They weren't, and they were some that came out of World War II just to, you know, or during World War II just to work in the, you know, the factories and things like that. But essentially Hollywood is this kind of colonization of this mildly, uh, this mild weather area of, of the world, um, by complete insanity. <laughs> this, this is one shot that is, I think has always been one of my favorites, even before I knew that I, I knew people who knew you is that shot of, uh, Richard Pryor's, uh, face. Uh, I think it was for, uh, a billboard on the Sunset Strip for Richard Pryor on the Sunset Strip. Yes, that was. Yeah, the <laughs> and I, I, for me, that just it's it's a funny picture, but it's also sort of, in some ways, very telling of this of this city. It's like all of a sudden you see this big black face sitting in this iconic location in Los Angeles, looking as if he's screaming. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just it's just a great shot. And I've always wondered. Oh, did, did the guy who shot this just happen on it? Did he know that this was going up or going down? What's the story behind that photograph? It's actually sort of funny. I was actually coming, it was, I don't know, eight or nine in the morning on a Sunday, and I was coming back from a magazine assignment, actually. I'd been spending, I spent a day or two uh, as part of a four photographer team uh, that had been hired by Discover Magazine, uh, one of the photographers being Joe McNally. Uh, to cover the first space shuttle landing. And so we'd been out in the, you know, out in the high desert, and that morning the space shuttle had landed. And um, I'd taken really bad pictures of the space shuttle landing and uh, was, uh, you know, on my way in to return the rental equipment. I just dropped that off, and I was driving in this kind of dazed state, having very little, had very little sleep the night before. And just outside the Chateau Marmont on the north side of uh, Sunset Boulevard, I noticed a set of, objects stacked up and I kind of looked over my shoulder as I passed and realized that they were the components of a billboard and there was a truck there that was about to raise them. I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting. So I pulled over, um, took out a camera and realized it was this Richard Pryor billboard and it was uh, a billboard, that, uh, the original billboard had been shot by a photographer who I was friendly with named David Alexander, who was one of the great album cover photographers of that era and started A&I Studio, uh, you know, I uh, the photo lab here, Alexander and Ishihara photo lab. But anyway, the, it was basically shot from the, the Richard, to promote the Richard Pryor uh, live concert, Richard Pryor live on the Sunset Strip. So the Richard Pryor face in this, in this photograph had this outraged look on his face of just like open mouth kind of, you know, grotesque scream. So I waited until they were about to raise the head and took some pictures of it and then just, you know, like 
barely made my way home to sleep. <laughs> and that was it. And that was sort of the moment. But it was, it was, it was like one of those, those classic sorts of, uh, it, was, it was based on sort of anticipating what was going to happen. And also, it was, it was, you know, I'd, I'd been such an utter failure in photographing the space shuttle landing. Uh, at least I could photograph this object taking off, you know. It was sort of like my, uh, I, was, uh, I, was comp- I was overcompensating, you might say. Well, you, I see you as a, as a very Los Angeles photographer. And you do a lot of work on the street as well. And I'm curious to hear about how you experience Los Angeles. Because for me, um, this is such a car culture. And your example of driving by something and seeing something and then having to find a parking space, get out of your car, go out and make a shot, is so 180 degrees to New York, where you just walk <laughs> off the stoop and the theater is right in front of you. Um, so is is that... For you, a fairly common experience where you're sort of driving around, you see something, or do you find yourself going to certain locations because you think, oh, I, I just feel like going over here and I'll see what I can make or a mix of the two? I, in, in doing this the kind of street stuff that I've done over the years, I would rarely just go someplace and wander. Usually I was there because there was something happening. I thought there might be something happening that day. I would, I'd heard about a public event or something. Uh, and it happened to be an interesting spot or something. And then there were a certain number of pictures, like the Richard Pryor picture and a number of others, where I just happened upon things. I got a lot of pictures coming in and out of clubs with cameras. It'd be a fight outside or somebody, you know, having some kind of public, you know, on public display or being, you know, acting crazy or just, you know, people hanging out together. Uh, one, one of the, I, I go to where there's already heat of some sort and... It kind of then generates itself from there. It's, it, Los Angeles is not the sort of place that there just happens to be, you know, huge numbers of people doing interesting things all the time. You can, there are certain places where you can go, and, and there's, you know, much greater theatricality concentrated. Uh, you know, Hollywood Boulevard, Venice Beach, things like that. It's been that way since the, you know, the 40s. Muscle Beach was a place where my father did a documentary film in the late 1940s. And uh, it's, you know, there's always been this kind of public display in Los Angeles in certain areas at certain times. It's almost like, you know, like designated zones or something like that. <laughs> yeah. you know, we're, we're zoned, you know, we're zoned for theatricality from, you know, Figaro, you know Figueroa to uh, Sawtell or something, you know. But um, so, so basically I would come upon certain things in the course of things. There were sometimes I went places because there was something happening and I found something else happening. The, the thing to be open to is to not to you know, go to these places and think, well, I can only photograph uh, this open call audition and I'm going to ignore the traffic accident. You know, it's, um, you know, it, it's all it's all kind of the same. It, it is wherever it is. And it's interesting for, you know, whatever is in front of you, you have to sort of pull back and be willing to, you know, de-channelize your 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 uh, concentration and, 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 and take other things in yeah. and. Uh, on the business end, you know, with, with the whole changing market for photography, with so much being used on, on the web and in the skewing in terms of magazines for celebrity work and, 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 and the consolidation of all these newspapers and magazines into these singular bodies who own them all, how is that in, affecting your ability to, to um, not, not just get work but to create the kind of work that you, you have an affinity for? Well, it, it you know, for, for quite a long time, I've based this part of what I do on coming up with ideas and, and getting, you know, persuading people to let me do it for them. So um, there is, 
much more opportunity to do work and have it seen now than ever before. But it's very much like the music business. Uh, you know, it's you, you can get your uh, video on YouTube for nothing. You can be seen by gazillions of people. Your only problem is getting paid for it. Um, you know, if you think about it, you know, what's happened to music, you see the, you, you know, essentially musicians, even if your, your finest musicians are kind of in the t-shirt business, you know, music is a loss leader to sell t-shirts on tours. So, you know, they're, they're, they found a, like a really, really elaborate way to sell t-shirts. That's kind of, it's, I'm exaggerating slightly, but not terribly. So when you're talking about, you know, the musical geniuses that we grew up with and that we know now and that are continuing to, to generate from the culture, and how they are, they've been stripped of the ability to profit from their own, uh, their own activities. It's a shocking thing. And so, you know, we see in photography, and photography has never been more explosively, you know, relevant than it is right now. I mean, Instagram has just, you know, nobody could have predicted, you know, four or five years ago that, that still photo culture would have become so dominant and be gaining so much uh, kind of weight and uh, dimension in the culture. It's unbelievable. Uh, at the same time, you know, the sources of paid uh, work uh, have, have equivalently shrunk. You know, it's that, that old line, you know, how do you compete with free? Um, so photographers need, you know, and this is like, you know, boilerplate, obviously. Uh, they just have to be inventive and kind of come up with ways, as far as I can tell at least, from my perspective, to... Uh, create markets. Uh, it's almost like you have to part of you have to be entrepreneurial in terms of um, creating a persona, creating something that you do that uh, is unique enough that people actually want to pay for it in some way. So what are you doing? Are you sending pitch letters to these publications or to these uh, PR agencies and saying, hey, I got this idea for, uh, for a photo story that I'd like to shoot? How does that work? Essentially, that's, it's it. what I've done in the last number of years is not so much been pitching stories has been pitching features that I can do, you know, execute for a couple of years for them. So, you know, uh, instead of pitching individual stories such as the audition story, I'll pitch a feature idea. Like I would, the, the web print features I've done for the last, you know, five, six years for a couple of different places have been pitched as features. You know, so I, basically I've been... And explain what that is for people who, not, who don't know what, what a feature is. Oh, okay. In, in, in the case of both Los Angeles Times and The Hollywood Reporter, uh, I had uh, features that ran on their websites in which I would visit, you know, moving television sets. Um, but the LA Times initially was also ad sets and music video sets, but uh, essentially came down to music and tel I'm sorry, TV and movies. And same thing with The Hollywood Reporter. So some stuff would run in the print edition, some, and then galleries would run on the uh, websites. And so I'd you know, fly around to different movie sets and TV sets or shoot the ones that were shooting locally still here. Um, and they would run stories related to that around, particularly The Hollywood Reporter, around Emmy's time because there's a need to show the Emmy contenders and so forth. And so... I was able to sort of parlay what I had done at Premier Magazine, Premier Magazine folding after like 11 and a half years, um, into an equivalent larger set of features at those other two places. So I went from pitching individual stories to pitching a feature idea to Premier, to pitching the feature to The Times, to pitching the feature to The Hollywood Reporter. That was sort of how it proceeded. 
And um, so I'm looking for now uh, another sort of excuse to uh, have people hire me for an, on, on a sort of an equivalent basis. Yeah. Well, one of the things that you also do is you do portraiture. Mm-hmm. And I saw that on your site that you have a lot of corporate corporate types that you make photographs of for, again, for probably magazines. And how is working on Hollywood sets and working with that whole dynamic different than when you're photographing these, these corporate people for these portraitures? And what things have you learned from shooting on Hollywood sets has helped you when it comes to photographing those people? Just be nice. <laughs> be polite. Remember people's names, you know, like write it down. Call them Mr. and, and Ms. No, I... <laughs> table manners. Um, no, I... The, actually, that's kind of... I have a kind of strangely bifurcated uh, mind in, in this regard. I mean, basically, you know, probably the height of my portrait career was a couple of years. I was a contract photographer for Fortune magazine in the late 90s, from 98 to 2000. And um, I've always kind of loved doing that sort of stuff because it's like playing with an erector set. I would just drag a lot of lighting equipment around and uh, create these you know, little kind of scenarios, you know, this person standing in front of that. And um, I became less interested in it over the years because I realized at some point that um, I had, my interest in, in, in the Hollywood subject matter became stronger and stronger. And I realized that the, I even more strongly that I didn't want to be a fulfillment vehicle as much as I wanted to be an an, auteur is probably too strong a word, but an author at least. Mm -hmm. I wanted to create my own parameters and then work within them just more thoughtfully as opposed to, you know, just do a really good job of, of, uh, you know, translating an incoming assignment idea. Um, I have friends that, that love that kind of incoming stimulation. It just gets them going really strongly. With me, it was perfectly fine, but it was um, kind of a high-level mechanical thing. Yeah. Um, and you, you know, you—it's actually a lot of fun. Portraiture is insane fun. Um, you know, you meet people for very brief periods of time, and but they can be amazing people. You get this access to people for you know that, that are you know culture heroes. They're intellectually fascinating in one way or another. Unfortunately, you know, your transaction with them as a photographer is incredibly minimal. You're basically, you know, you've got 15 minutes with Bill Gates or, you know, Stephen Jobs or something like that. And you, you know, you don't really get to know very much about them. I mean, you may have some hilarious moment. I remember with Bill Gates, he asked me about a technical aspect of a picture I was shooting of him. And as I started to describe it to him, he, he, I didn't know this about him, but he has this habit when he concentrates of rocking back and forth and kind of frowning to in concentration. It just means that he is kind of... Um, he's focusing on what you're saying and, mm-hmm. and it's just, it's just an introvert, you know, it's kind of this unconscious thing that he does, but I didn't know that about him at the time. And so I'm standing very close to him and we're talking and he began doing this thing that looked like the, the, the Jewish thing of dovening, you know, kind of mm-hmm. like that rhythmic thing. And he, since he was, he was furrowing his brow in concentration, I thought he was becoming disturbed with me. <laughs> <laughs> and so I sort of panicked and, uh, ended the, ended the technical <laughs> description like halfway through it and, and it kind of mumbled and walked away uh, it turned out of course he was perfectly friendly he was just you know that's how bill rolls that's you know right. well you've had a chance to have your work exhibited which gives you an opportunity to see people's reactions to your photographs which you typically don't get the opportunity 
to do when it's published in a magazine <laughs> or in a newspaper. Tell me about those experiences about, you know, being in a gallery show, whether it's here, whether it's, you know, elsewhere, and have, watching people respond to your photographs. What, what's, what were those initial times for you like? Well, it's strange. I, I haven't only... I haven't had the full experience because a number of times when I've exhibited publicly, I haven't been able to, uh, for example, have the, the porno pictures fully, shall we say, ventilated. Um, when I was at the Perpignan Festival in, in France, which was probably the most publicly, you know, where the, the greatest number of people walking through observably was, you know, happened. Um, the, the, the most extreme picture that I wanted to have up on display they, they told me it was just it was just like not really suitable for, for you know <laughs> they couldn't have kids walk through then and, and some adults in fact and this is a very sophisticated photojournalism it's, it's the you know mm -hmm. big photojournalism thing where they have like people with separate heads and you know all the atrocities of the of that particular year showing but the sexual stuff was like overloaded even for the French sensibility so I would see people kind of going through and it, it is very funny because they approach certain pictures um, and, and they. If it if it has a certain kind of content that, that that makes them uncomfortable, they'll look at it and kind of move away. They, their body language changes from photo to photo, and some people linger in one at one photo that they feel is safe. But the one that they're really interested in, you can tell because they circle back and look over their shoulder or something. At so who's watching them watch? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they, you know. And I also feel when I, I would really like to have what I should probably do is put up a video camera and just what time lapse it so I can see what they're like. Because I always have the feeling that someone's going to come up to me and say, oh, you're the photographer because they're gallery people there and there are people, other photographers going through in those festival situations that know you and you know them. And so you don't want, you, know, you can't be quite as anonymous as you'd like to be. And it's not the perfect, you know, beta test of, human reaction to this uh but it's, it's like a great it's a great moment yeah what do you think has been one of the best parts about your career in terms of what you've had the opportunity to witness and photograph photography is just like this this is, this is going to be a dated cultural reference but it's like an e-ticket in disneyland you know there are a few of us who still remember that. This is great. For those of, those of you who, who never experienced the e-ticket, you could just, it just it was like the ticket at Disneyland you could get on all the rides. And, and it was, anyway, photography is just this great passport. Um, and if you're interested in the world, which I'm interested in, I'm not interested in these in, in scenario mongering or building sets or photographing objects on things. I, I want to go see things. This is, how, this is like the best way to see things. You're just this, you know, accidental intentional tourist um and it's 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 a remarkable way to pass through uh life and uh and it's uh and it's pretenses it's it's just amazing well my final question that i ask each guest is that i ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own so who would that one photographer be and why uh jeff jacobson um Remarkable photographer, really close friend. Um, he is probably the most photography, photography photographer I know. He is someone who actually uh, just photographs on a constant basis. He's one of those people that carries a camera all the time and is always shooting things um, and sort of doesn't distinguish between his, his, his life and his photos. And he'll be partway through one project and then start showing you a group of pictures that seem to be emerging from 
his pictures, even though he thought he was still working on Project A. Something is ha- else is happening in his pictures. He learns more from his own process than anybody I've ever seen and is kind of organically connected to the photographic process in a way that no other photographer I've ever known is. So many other photographers have a kind of a look that, that gets applied to every picture or a style that they become used to and it becomes their, you know, kind of like alpha style. He sort of responds so much. He's, it's kind of inhaling his own fumes, you might say, but in the best way. And uh, he learns, he, his process is a fascinating process to me because I actually have a much more, you might say, rigid or, you know, directed style. His is actually this kind of strange bubbling up from God knows where in his subconscious organic self-referentially interesting uh, way of, of enlarging himself. And his work keeps changing and getting more interesting in different ways than you would ever have thought it would, it would, it would get. Uh, and where can people go to find out more about you, you and your work? Um, uh, the LAPD website is <laughs> where the, all the good information, no, it, 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 davidstrick.com. Great. Well, David, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Marinex. As we continue to grow the show and expand our offerings here at The Candid Frame, your support is invaluable. And you can show that support in a variety of different ways. You can make small donations using PayPal. A link for that you'll find at the CandidFrame.com website, where donations of $5, $10, $20, or even more are greatly appreciated and go a long way to helping us improve the show. You can also post reviews on the iTunes web store, which help our rankings and create more awareness about the great program that we offer here. The show's editor is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is provided by Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. Till next time, this is Ibarian X. Perello, and this is The Candid Frame.